Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. We've had two emails this week. <laughs> it's an all-time low. Two emails. Now, I like to think people have been observing the official period of mourning. Uh, that's one explanation. There are others. <laughs> but let's be clear, you know, nothing lasts forever. Police Academy series came to an end. People thought that would run forever. They only made seven. Anyway, um, but it occurred to me, I'm put, trying to put a brave face on this, it occurred to me maybe it doesn't help that I don't ask for emails on specific subjects. It's always general because, you know, any any views on snooker are welcome. So I thought uh, for next week, and I'll get this in right away, for next week, and it's a very simple question. I thought I would ask our listenership a very simple question. Who is your favourite snooker player and why? Now, I know that sounds quite banal in a way, and it's the sort of thing you'd ask children to do at school. But actually, it is interesting. I think the responses will be interesting. Some of them will be easy to predict, certain players. But there are a very uh, multitudinous reasons why people have certain favourite players. Sometimes they're sort of inherited from a parent, because it can be players who no longer play, it can be current players... So there's almost sort of passed down. You know, you watched Steve Davis with your nan and he became your favourite for that reason. Or maybe you, you, the first time you went to see live snooker, you saw a certain player and you became attached to them. You'd like, it's obvious, but you like a style of play from a player. Maybe you've met a snooker player and that had an effect on you and you follow them for that reason. So that's what I'd like to know for next week. Who is your favourite snooker player? Why? Any stories you've got? Any uh, explanations you've got will be most welcome. And let's face it, if we get nothing on this, <laughs> it's time to pack in. So this is a uh, chance, if, you, if you've emailed before and ha- it hasn't been read out for whatever reason, or you've thought, oh, if I email it, it won't be read out, believe me, it'll be read out. <laughs> Probably quite slowly, just to pad out the time. Um, com is the address. That's com. It didn't help, I know, that I did inadvertently delete a few emails <laughs> the other week, um, which was an accident, And you know, but there we are. But anyway, we're going to put a brave face on it, and I'm going to, certainly going to read out the two we've had. <laughs> and we start, and they are good ones. They are good ones. Gary Park, we start with. He said, I'd like to add one further point to your last item regarding the importance of snooker being presented on the BBC. 
Those people who are hostile... Now, there was an email last week um, asking why the BBC got, got criticism for its coverage over and above what the other broadcasters got. And the point I made was that I didn't think any of them really should be overly criticised. I think they all do a good job. But anyway, Gary writes, those people who are hostile to its coverage would do well to remember that when a popular sport's top-level competitions are no longer broadcast on one of the traditional terrestrial channels, the public's knowledge, understanding and interest can soon wane. This seems peculiar, I know, in an age where the vast majority of households have hundreds of channels and streaming services at the click of a button, but it seems to remain the case that sports suffer without real mainstream exposure. The best example of this trend is cricket. Until 2006, when test matches moved entirely to Sky, cricket was acknowledged as our national summer game, and the overwhelming majority of casual viewers broadly followed the national team's fortunes. Since that move, cricket has come to be regarded as niche, minority interest only, played in independent schools. Furthermore, the crowds at international fixtures, though very healthy in number, have changed in nature to something far more akin to those of Premiership football. Large amounts of money have come into the game, and there is always much talk within the game of broadening its appeal. But in terms of popular consciousness, the fortunes of the England team are rarely of national concern. Worse still, participation has reduced among young people, and many cricket clubs from village to smaller county sides are struggling to survive. Presently, snooker seems to be thriving in many ways, notwithstanding the effects of COVID, such as the temporary absence of Chinese tournaments from the calendar, but no one should take that prosperity for granted. The coverage on ITV and Eurosport is excellent, especially for those of us who have followed the game for a long time. But the game also needs the wider profile and steady inflow of new enthusiasts that universal access can provide. Gary Park there. Well, thank you, Gary, for that thoughtful uh, email. And thanks for sending in an email, <laughs> first and foremost. But actually, it was good as well. The points you make about cricket are interesting. I certainly think... I mean, listen, cricket is still popular. Um, they've found new ways to make it popular. The 100 is not my thing, but it has worked as a spectator um, activity. We seem to be getting more and more short-format sort of cricket events now. Uh, the county championship is sort of being more and more kind of disregarded. Test matches do do well, um, and next year it'll be the Ashes, which is a, a big deal, and the World Cup as well. Um, you know, last time that was here, that was a big success. Women's cricket also is doing well. But it's true, I think, that... I mean, I remember growing up, and this is not only true cricket, but in the 80s, because you had a programme like Grandstand, and, of course, World of Sport on ITV, but Grandstand was the main one. Because it showed so many sports, you knew the big personalities in lots of different sports. And I think now... You know, if the England cricket team walked down the street, how many of them, it's almost like a, like an episode of Pointless, how many of them would people actually recognise? They'd probably know Ben Stokes, they'd probably know Joe Root, Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad. Some of the others, maybe not so much, um, because as you say, I mean, Sky's coverage is brilliant of cricket, but it is obviously behind a paywall. Uh, snooker uh, continues on the BBC, the big events continue on the BBC. Um it has to be a positive, and that's why, of course, and I'll talk about the mixed doubles later, but the mixed doubles being on ITV, the main channel, on Saturday and Sunday afternoon, again, has to be a positive, because even though we have hundreds of channels, and as you say, streaming services, the fact is, for the last 60 years, the most two, the two most popular, most-watched television channels in Britain, and again, we're talking from British-centric point of view here, but they've been BBC One and ITV. And on those channels, because they have a general audience... People who maybe wouldn't normally run into snooker on ITV4 or other channels will, will have a chance to see it and hopefully will will watch it. And if it's successful for this event, there's no reason to uh, suspect it might not continue for other tournaments going forward. So 
that's ITV, you're talking about the BBC, they are still important for snooker, and put it this way, would it be a good thing if snooker disappeared from the BBC? I don't see how it could be. Um, so anyway, you make those points, and you make them very well. Alpha Bonzi has written in, uh, and that's two questions. The first is, how and why has Sean Murphy gone from ranting about how amateurs shouldn't be in the UK Championship, which probably led to this season's format change, to ranting about how the top 16 shouldn't automatically go to the Crucible? It's question one. Question two, what has caused World Snooker Tour to finally introduce a minimum prize money guarantee after stubbornly insisting we do not pay mediocrity for so long? Well, let's answer that second one first. Um... They did insist that for a long time, we don't pay mediocrity. And, of course, the players, it was a little bit... um, I I didn't like the language of that because the players aren't mediocre, actually. A lot of them are really good. It's just that the standard's really high. You know, there's no shame in playing really well and losing a match in the first round. Problem was, of course, there's no money for it. Now, recently they've introduced this... It's really a sort of loan system in a way. It's 20,000 that is then, if you, you know, the more when you earn money, it gets deducted from that. Um, so if you earn 21,000, you, you effectively, with, the, with that loan, you earn a thousand. But anyway, they're, they're introducing financial help for players to help them pay bills and it's been mainly well received. Why have they done it? Well, I, th- I think even when, I mean, I mentioned last week, even when I wrote this piece about six months ago on the Eurosport website about the prize money, even though publicly they were insisting there wasn't going to be a change, it was a fact that behind the scenes people actually within World Snooker Tour and at the WP would say, pushing for it and those voices seem to have been heard it may have made a difference that Barry Hearn has stepped away from being chairman he's now president maybe he's not as hands-on because this was very much his viewpoint and listen he's someone who has come from humble beginnings to make a huge success of things he doesn't believe in in handouts but um, I think common sense has kind of um, kind of sort of come to come to rule in this in this case and you know it would be interesting to see so we talked last week about whether it's continued going forward. Sean Murphy, well, I'd, firstly, I don't think what he said last year about the amateurs at the UK Championship has, has been has affected the format change. Uh, Sean Murphy, uh, on his podcast, 147, was asked uh, a question, I believe, about what things in snooker he would change. And he said he felt that at the World Championship, all the players should come in the very first qualifying round. Of course, at the moment, the top 16 are seeded to the first round at the Crucible, the last 32. He said it wasn't fair and everyone should come in round one of qualifying. And also the Masters should be a ranking event. On that point, I mean, I, I, I disagree on both points uh, of what Sean said. first thing to say is it's good that he has a podcast. It's good that he's trying to promote snooker in that way. Sean is a great player, obviously, but also a great fan of snooker. He's one of those people that you know... If he's not in a tournament or he's been knocked out, he'll be at home watching it and, you know, he's become a very good commentator in a very short space of time. So no problem with Sean Murphy at all, but I think he's wrong on both counts. He said about the Masters that everyone has the same chance to get in it. That isn't true because the Masters, unlike the ITV Players Series events, they're based on one season's ranking. Now, obviously, at the start of every season, everyone starts on zero. To get in the Masters, it's based on the two-season ranking list, the official list. And, of course, everyone doesn't have the same chance there because a lot of players are coming in on their first year on tour. So they're coming in only with half a season's points, whereas a lot of other players have one and a half season's points. Making the Masters a ranking event would just look like kind of even more reward for players already at the top of the game. So I don't think that's uh, that's 
a flyer. But that's kind of been ignored in the main talk, which has been about the, the World Championship and about a, a, an absolute flat draw. The problem with it is very simple, and it is very simple, OK? TV don't want it, and that's the end of it, really. Sean Murphy said other sports don't do this. Actually, most sports do this, OK? Arguably the most famous sporting competition in the world is the FA Cup. Well, in that, the top teams come in round three, not round one, and certainly not round one of qualifying. Novak Djokovic doesn't have to qualify for Wimbledon. Rory McIlroy doesn't have to qualify for the Open. That Their status and their achievements mean that they get certain privileges, but they're privileges that have been earned. They haven't been given to them. They've earned them. Everyone starts at the bottom. The top players get to the top and they earn rewards. And they earn rewards in the service of the sport, okay? Because the people who put money into the sport, overwhelmingly broadcasters, but also sponsors and the ticket-buying public, want to see the best players, guaranteed. The only way this plan of Sean Murphy's would work would be to leave the Crucible, because clearly you couldn't play all the matches there. It would take forever. I mean, it takes long enough as it is, but it would take forever unless you, you know, absolutely sh- shorten the format, and then what would be the point? Um, but all, you know, all, all that actually matters in this is what, what do the people that put the money in want? Because without them, we don't have a professional sport. I made this point on Twitter. You can have any format you like, okay, but if there's no commercial support for it, you'll be playing it in a snooker club for no money. So they're the people who need to be consulted. What players want, frankly, is an irrelevance. You know, <laughs> a lot of them have never had another job and they don't understand that it's not up to them to, cho- to choose the terms of their employment. If you work in a bank, you don't say, well, I'll decide what time I'm going to come in. I'll decide what my duties are. And by the way, I'll decide what you're going to pay me. That's not how it works. It's the opposite. Your employer tells you all of those things. And if you don't like them, you get another job. People talk about fairness, you know, but that's a nebulous concept. It means something different to everybody. I mean, how is it fair that all the qualifiers are held in Britain? Maybe we should have a quota system where there's only a certain percentage of players on tour allowed to be from one country. I'm sure everyone, all the players who believe in fairness would be right uh, for that, wouldn't they? No, they wouldn't, clearly. So I don't agree with his idea. I think it's it's lacking per- uh, perception, if you like, perspective. Players from all sections of the rankings, and Sean is talking against himself here. It's important to say that because he's a top 16 player, so he's talking against himself. But players generally see things from a player's perspective, but the sport doesn't just exist for them. The one group of people you never hear them talk about is the audience, Okay, Next time they're at a tournament and they're starting the match, they should look round at the people who are sitting in the seats behind them because they're putting the money in, and by extension, people sat at home are also putting the money in because they're sustaining the broadcast revenues. Um, So if it's not commercially viable, it ain't going to happen. And this plan is not commercially viable. And what annoys me more than ever, okay, and this is a general point now, why do so many snooker players, and we see it certainly around the time of the World Championship, why do so many of them want to trash our best asset, which is the World Championship. That is the one jewel in the crown we have in our sport. It's stood tall for decades. It's hugely popular on television. The BBC shows 17 days of it, which is unparalleled annually. It's worked. It brings in fans who don't watch any other snooker tournament. But every year, someone wants to leave the crucible. Someone wants to cut the frames. Someone wants to change the format. Why? Why? What on earth? Why on earth would you target that? as the thing to change. There's a lot of other things in the sport that probably should change, but the World Championship is not one of them. And 
it should be ring fenced. And the problem with with all this, of course, is and listen, Sean has been asked a question, he's answered it, got no problem with that, and it's, this is not his fault. But the problem is comments like this get picked up by the media who are doing their job, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it gives the impression from the outside that there's you know there's a problems in snooker, the players don't like the world championship. What's going to happen? There's no problem with the World Championship. It's hugely popular. It's perfectly fair. Everyone in that top 16 now has started at the bottom. They've worked their way up. It's elite sport, you know? That's that's how it works. As I say, it works in all of the sports. Uh, is Sean Murphy saying that Wrexham deserve to be in the Champions League, just like Liverpool? Why? <laughs> Liverpool are a top four club in the country. Wrexham aren't. We have a pyramid system in football. Should we scrap that then? Should we scrap the, the divisions because it's unfair that that Chelsea and Manchester United get to be in the Premier League. Come on, seriously. I, I, just think, I just think he's wrong. Perfectly entitled to the view, and as I say, he's talking against himself because he's a top 16 player, but he's just, isn't, it isn't commercially realistic. Um, and Phil Seymour actually said, he's the, uh, the co-host of that podcast, he said, if it, if, it, if it ain't broke, why try and fix it? I mean, the Masters and the World Championship are our two most successful tournaments. So, <laughs> so what, what is the reason for, for tinkering with them? Don't give me fairness, because that, that means different things to different people. What about fair, but if we're going to talk fairness, what about fairness for the audience? Don't they deserve fairness? Don't the broadcasters who pay millions to show our sport deserve fairness? So it's a non-runner for me. But it, you say, why has he gone, you call, Alpha calls it ranting. I'm not sure it's ranting. He's giving his opinion. He's entitled to his opinion. He's a player who has won all our big tournaments and gives a lot to the sport. I think everyone knows that. He gives a lot back to the sport. I just think on this, he's wrong. Simple as that. And when I see Sean, I'll be very happy to, again, explain why I think that. Let's move on, because, of course, at the weekend, we've got a new tournament, the World Mixed Doubles, which there's a lot of excitement for. And I must say this as well. World Snooker Tour have done a brilliant job at promoting it. They've thrown everything at it. They've been doing videos. They've been doing all sorts of stuff on social media. They interviewed Rianne and Rebecca Kenner. And I've generally pumped the stuff out. I'm sure we'll see more of it this week. So, you know, there's been times where we've criticised them for various things. I think we have to um, commend them for the effort they've made. And, you know, let's hope it continues for all the other events, not just for a new tournament, but for all the others as well. But I think they've they've really um, got behind this new event, and I think there is genuine interest in it. But, uh, of course, we know the achievements of the four male players, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Mark Selby, Neil Robertson, Judd Trump. Between them, they've won 105 ranking titles, OK? So the, we, we've seen plenty of them. But in terms of the, the women, we've got, of course, Rianne Evans, we've got Nogon Yi, we've got Mink Nutcherat and Rebecca Kenner. And they're following in something of a lineage of, of uh, in the history of women's snooker. But this is the biggest showcase the women's game has ever had. It's live on ITV, and they are there with equal status to those four great male players that I mentioned, the top four professionals in the world. But it's worth looking back, I think, at the way the women's game has has evolved, has grown. The first Women's World Championship actually was held in 1934, only seven years after the first World Professional Championship. It was won by Ruth Harrison. She was a coal miner's daughter from Durham. And the women actually had, for several decades, reasonably regular events staged at the Burroughs and Watts venue in Soho Square in London. And although they never had the profile of the men, they still had regular snooker. But the problem is that venue closed down in the early 1970s. Other venues were less sort of welcoming. And the women's game basically declined. It, it, it had, you know, the odd sort of 
attempted revival in the 1970s. Vera Selby won the 1976 World Championship. But essentially, it wasn't until the early 80s, and thanks largely to the efforts of Mandy Fisher, that the women's game came back. Mandy Fisher set up the World Ladies Billiards and Snooker Association, and she indeed won the World Championship herself. The real breakthrough came, and bearing in mind at this point, we're talking the 80s, the professional game, featuring, of course, the men, has really taken off, obviously. So you think maybe the women will come in in that slipstream and achieve some prominence themselves. Well, it sort of started to happen. 1985, that was a big year for snooker, of course, the Dennis Taylor-Steve Davis Black Ball final at the Crucible. There was a 17-year-old, Alison Fisher, who came along and she won the world title. And she became a big deal. She became the most recognisable female player by some distance to that point. She won seven world titles between 1985 and 1994. She got invited and Barry Hearn managed her, ever savvy, got her in the matchroom stable. She got in the matchroom league. She beat players like Neil Folds, Mike Hallett, Tony Drago in various tournaments. She turned professional at a time when there were hundreds of professionals, her highest ranking 191. So she didn't really break through to the sort of upper echelons, but she still did reasonably well. She became, in 1991, the first woman to win a match in a ranking event. That was in the Dubai Classic qualifying. And she also made the first televised century by a woman. And this is on YouTube. I actually tweeted it the other day. It was in a 1993 mixed doubles event in Belgium. It was widely uh, reported when the doubles came back that the last televised mixed doubles had been 1991. But actually, this was two years after she partnered Steve Davis against Stephen Hendry and Stacey Hilliard. And she made a break of 102. And then in 1994, she played Stephen Hendry in the European League. And she made a break of 133. And that's the highest televised break made by a woman. Still a record standing to this day. Largely thanks to Alison Fisher, there was interest in the women's game. Barry Hearn took over the promotion of the Women's World Championship. And it got on Sky Sports a couple of years. But still, obviously, the professional game was hugely more popular. And also at that point, women's sport, you know, outside of things like tennis and maybe to an extent golf, and obviously in the Olympics, you know, it's different with athletics and swimming and whatever. But in terms of sort of week-in, week-out sport, it wasn't as high profile as it is now. I mean, obviously this year, I mean, the most watched sport event in Britain this year was the final of the European Women's Championship. 23 million people watched that on all BBC platforms. But back then, it was a different time. We're going about 30 years. It, they weren't... I mean, for example, you didn't see as many women involved in sports coverage. It was 1991, actually, was the, the year Helen Rollison presented Grandstand, which I mentioned earlier. That she was the first woman to present that. And sort of off the back of that, we saw people like Sue Barker, of course, our own Hazel Irvin, eventually Claire Balding, Gabby Logan, these brilliant broadcasters coming through. But, it, you know, it was very much dominated by men in those days, sports broadcasting. Anyway, the Women's World Championship, it got on TV, but the money wasn't great and Alison Fisher and other leading players, other world champions like Karen Corr and Kelly Fisher, from the mid to late 90s, they start they started to realise that there was more of a living to be made in American nine-ball pool. And they went to the US and became hugely successful. Alison, the Duchess of Doom, is in the, uh, the Billiard Congress um, Hall of Fame in America, which is a big deal and, and of course... She's got the MBE as well. And Kelly Fisher and Karen Corr have been very successful. It has had several others. At this point, women's snooker had been taken over by the WPBSA, the old regime. But they encountered a lot of financial problems. And the women's game was dropped. And in 2004, there was no world championship. 
It was revived in 2005. Rhianne Evans came along. She was only 19. And she won that title. And then she went on to win it 10 times in a row, which is incredible. She won it 12 so f- times so far. She's won a uh, record number of ranking events, 59. And, of course, you know, for, for many years, the Queen of Snooker, and like Alison Fisher, has been awarded the MBE for her achievements in snooker and for representing women's snooker so well. Her run was eventually ended in 2015 by Onyi. She's won now a total of three world titles so far. But Rhian Evans, between 2008 and 2011, she won 90 matches in a row. (laughs) Uh, And that was 21 tournaments that 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 encompassed. So 90 matches without losing. Incredible. Um, 2013, she became the first woman to qualify for the final stages of a ranking event. That was in the Bushy Classic. 2017, she beat Robin Hull in the qualifiers for the World Championship. Of course, she ran Sean Murphy to a decider in the Champion of Champions 2019. And last year, I think a lot of people will remember the 2021 British Open. She really should have beat Mark Allen in, in that British Open match. She lost in a decider. She had a good chance to win it. Pretty rancorous affair, that, for, for reasons people will understand. But, uh, you know, she, she's actually played well on TV, actually. She probably played better on TV in, in some senses than in some of the other matches that have been lower profile. So that sort of takes us close to the, the present day. But 2015 was an important year because the new WPBC, WPBSA regime, headed by Jason Ferguson, took over the women's circuit. Now, that was a big moment because it went from... A, a circuit not really going anywhere to one that's been very significant. It had 38 members then. It's now got 177 from 29 countries. This season, there are tournaments in the USA, Australia, Thailand, Belgium, and the UK. And of course, last year, the decision was made in conjunction with World Snooker Tour to award two places on the professional circuit each season for players from the Women's Tour. So that's hence the four players that are in this mixed doubles. They're all now professional players. And that's... Uh, designating the women's tour as a as a development tour to get on to the main tour. Not a decision everyone has agreed with, but it's a progressive decision and it's designed again, going back to the, the earlier discussion, it's designed for commercial reasons. Highest break made on the women's circuit, 140 by Rianne Evans. Mink Nutcherat is the only woman to have made a 147 in witnessed practice. She did that in her own Bangkok in Thailand. So that's the sort of background to women's snooker. In terms of the players, Rianne got into snooker through her family, her whole family play. Um, she got into it at, at a young age. Uh, Mink, actually, her, her mother worked in a snooker club and her father played snooker, so she came from a snooker background. Started young, she started at the age of 10. Onyi, uh, coming from Hong Kong, has a very good support base there. David Rowe is a former uh, top 16 player. He's in a corner. Uh, Wayne Griffiths, uh, coach, son of Terry, of course, based out in Hong Kong. Practices with Marco Fu, so she comes into it with a good support base. And Rebecca Kenner, I think, possibly the most interesting story of them all, because she got into snooker, and it's a familiar story for, for, for boys and girls. She got into snooker through her father, he played, and at weekends they would play snooker together. And then I think she got into other sports, she got into certainly football, but she dislocated her shoulder and was unable to play physical sports. And this happened at around the time that her father sadly passed away. So unable to play physical sports, but wanting to, you know, take part in something, and also, I guess, wanting to, to honour her father as well, she went back to snooker. She she entered a tournament on the women's tour. It was local to her. Possibly not 
uh, sort of a you know a, a lightning start. She found it hard early on, but she persevered. She's since won a tournament in Hong Kong. She was runner up this year in the US Open, and she's got herself into this event. It's quite inspiring, I think. She came to snooker or back to snooker relatively late, twenty six when she rejoined uh, or when she joined the women's tour. But now has got this exciting weekend to look forward to. And I think anyone who begrudges the women being in this and begrudges the money really has got to take a look at themselves. This is an opportunity for snooker to present itself in a different light, but also to hopefully provide inspiration to girls who maybe thought it wasn't for them. Rian Evans said last week in an interview with Will Snooker Tour, she said, last year when I played on TV, I had a message from a father saying her daughter had seen me and wanted to play snooker. She only thought there were female referees, not players. Hopefully now people will see that women can do it and we will do it. I think that's a really good way of putting it and um, I wish them well. I'm looking forward to the event. There's no question that the men, you know, there's a gulf in experience and a gulf in quality between the men and the women. No one's arguing with that. If you take any four players from low down the rankings and put them in, they won't be as good as those top four because they are the top four. But that's not the point. The point is it's snooker. In a, in a sporting world where everyone is struggling or maybe trying to justify its airtime and its relevance and its credibility, it's Snooker saying, look, we're open to all and this is, this is what we can do. So the, the Bet Victor World Mixed Doubles is live on ITV in the UK. Now, the arrangements outside the UK have not yet been made clear. So there'll be people listening to this saying, this all sounds great, but how do we watch it? Hopefully it will be available on Matchroom Live. I think that will all be announced this week. I hope so, because it'd be terrible if, uh, if people around the world, particularly obviously places like Thailand and Hong Kong and Australia, where, where actual some of the competitors are from, can't watch it. So hopefully it will be made available uh, all around the world because this is an event I think people need to see. Uh, and no doubt uh, there'll be plenty to say about it next week. But anyway, I'll reiterate my, someone call it a plea, <laughs> uh, a call maybe for... It's very simple. Who's your favourite snooker player and why? I think it'd be really interesting to get as many responses to that as possible um, and just see why people like certain players. I'm not interested in players you don't like, by the way. Let's keep it positive. So who's your favourite player and why? And maybe, maybe why you got into the sport, maybe why you still watch the sport. And I'm sure we'll see lots of different answers to that. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. We're proud members the Sports Social Network, and uh, I'll say this to, in, in closing, I would love to continue the podcast, obviously um, it, it relies to a great degree on the interest that there is, and the numbers are robust by the way, the numbers are robust, put it this way, if I went to Macedonia I wouldn't have to buy a drink, that's what I'm saying, but obviously you know, we we serve at the uh, the pleasure of the public, <laughs> and it it, uh, it depends on, on, on interest uh to keep going and uh, you know otherwise I'm just sat here talking to myself so anyway uh, enjoy the mixed doubles the British Open follows immediately afterwards um, and oh we should also mention of course there is snooker on before that this 900 series it's a big thing for amateur snooker now this is on it's a channel called Sporty Stuff TV which you can watch online so you, if you're not in the UK you can watch this and uh each uh, match is 15 minutes long, so it's, it's, it's got a shot clock. It's not quite the shootout, but it's, it's a shortened version. And basically, whoever's in, in the lead after 900 seconds, which is 15 minutes, hence the name 900, is the winner. This is a, another innovation by Jason Francis, who's a very... Um, he's one of these people, Jason, because he's behind the seniors and the legends and all that stuff. 
a lot of people come into snooker, said they're going to do things, and ultimately don't. He comes. In, he's come in. He said he's going to do things, and he's done them all. And this is another uh, project he's got involved in, where you know he set it all up. He's got it off the ground. He got, on t- got it on TV. You know, you can only um, pay tribute to that. He's a. I'm trying to think of what the word is. Innovator, I suppose. Um, my good friends Neil Folds and Rachel Casey will be spearheading the coverage. Um, and it's on, now the only thing is it's on quite late in the UK. It's 10 pm till 1 am because they have to wait for the Greyhounds to finish before that. So it is quite late. Obviously, people getting up for work may be too late, but there'll be people who, who are night owls or watch it, and of course, people who can record it as well. Um, the first session is on Tuesday in the afternoon because they're not going to play Monday because of the Queen's funeral, but uh, then it's on every week pretty much Monday to Wednesday, 10 p.m. till 1 a.m. So it's a chance to see amateur players, including quite a few big names. I mean, Michael Holt's in it, Andrew Higginson, and some some you know legends like Dennis Taylor, Tony Knowles, Joe Johnson, Patsy Fagan, those sort of people, female players as well. So it's, it's a long list of interesting characters will be in that. I wish them well. And... Um, it's an opportunity to get amateur snooker on TV, which is quite rare. And listen, we've, we've been in a bit of a drought um, snooker-wise of late, so any action is to be uh, is to be celebrated. So we've got that, we've got the mixed doubles, we've got the British Open, and then we're kind of back in the swing of things. It's been, um, maybe this is why, why we haven't had any emails, it's been a very quiet period. But snooker, you know, you can't keep a good sport down. We're back, 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 and I'll be back, back, back next week. In the meantime... As we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.